What's going on, guys? In today's podcast, I am going to discuss a couple of what I feel are important players in terms of your fantasy draft this year and just your fantasy season. And because I, I say they're important because they are maybe the most unpredictable in terms of, or at least amongst the most unpredictable in terms of just trying to figure out where to stack them. And that is running backs Gus Edwards, now that unfortunately J.K. Dobbins is out for the year, and then as well Daryl Henderson. We're not really talking about Daryl a lot, and I want to shine the light on these two guys. I want to go kind of deep into what we can expect from them in this year, analyze what their floor, what their ceiling is, and so forth. So uh, let's start with Gus Edwards. So you know, the, the big question, what do we do with, what do we do with him? Like, where do we draft him? What are we supposed to think of him? So the Ravens, first of all, have an offense that will see, they will run the football. I mean, last year they averaged the most in the NFL in terms of rushing attempts per game at 34.6. That was about three carries more per game than any other team. Now, Lamar Jackson, of course, accounts for at least what, 10 of those or something like that. So he's, he's going to run the ball. So that's roughly 25 running back carries that you know, could or should be expected in terms of like what they've done throughout history. Cause I think it was about the same in 2019. So they currently have three running backs on their roster, the Ravens. They have Justice Hill, a fourth round pick that's now entering year three. And and they have a guy named Tyson Williams or something like that. That's that was an undrafted free agent last year. So when you look at Justice Hill, because he's you know definitely the most intriguing to me, and of course they have Gus Edwards, so that'd be their third, but Hill didn't do a ton last year. He did, however, he had a game in week 12 when J.K. Dobbins was on the COVID list against Pittsburgh where he touched the ball 11 times. So he had nine carries for 35 yards, so right at four yards a carry. He caught two of two targets um, for just five yards. So that was kind of the highlight of the 2020 season. And then Dobbins came back, and Hill was kind of just not really, you know, used a whole bunch, which is, I mean, expected. But where I found it intriguing when digging through Justice Hill in terms of what he's done in his career, back in 2019, as a rookie, he carried the ball 58 times for 225 yards and two touchdowns. And keep in mind, that's on a Baltimore offense that had Mark Ingram, Gus Edwards, you know, and so he was doing that as basically the third running back. So they do, or at least at one point, they did like him enough to give him the football, right? I mean, give him the ball a little bit here. So... The, the most intriguing part about that season was what he did in the playoff game that year. I think that was the year or that was the game where Mark Ingram was, I think, um, yeah, they, they basically benched Mark Ingram in that one and they kind of leaned on, they gave him more of work. But he played 50% of the snaps in that game against Tennessee. He didn't carry the ball once, but he did. And remember, it was a loss. So game flow was probably a little bit in the favor of a guy like Justice Hill. They targeted him five times. He caught four of those targets, just 26 yards. But the intent at that point was, hey, let's play him over Mark Ingram. And when he's in there, let's throw him the football. So I think that um, it's possible that the Ravens like him as a receiving back and, you know, just a potential third down, passing down kind of role. Definitely not set in stone because it's, you know, look, it's definitely not set in stone because they they could still sign a running back and that would just basically make Justice Hill, I don't know, not it could potentially make him a non-factor. So that's that's interesting. But if the Ravens don't sign a free agent, which again I half expect them to do, just with roster cuts, offloading a bunch of pretty good players into the open market and waivers and stuff like that. If they don't, though, then that's an indication that they feel very comfortable with Justice Hill in that role. Gus Edwards in his career, guys has a total 
of 18 receptions over his three years. He had nine last year, so that was an up, you know, a big year for him in that regard. But for the most part, I think it's safe to assume that they're not going to necessarily trust Gus Edwards to catch a bunch of passes. They don't throw a bunch of the running backs anyways, but you know, I think that we can safely assume Gus won't be catching the football. I think the reason they worked out Todd Gurley a, a month or two ago is because Todd Gurley can really catch the football and, and he can pass protect fairly well. So I think that made sense just from that standpoint alone. You don't think of Todd Gurley as your traditional third down back, but you know, I think that in this case it would make some sense. And I think that I think that was the thought process behind it because at that time, remember J.K. Dobbins was fully healthy and I think they were just kind of like, who's going to be our third down back if we're in a situation where we got to pass the ball a lot? You know, who can come in there, pass, protect, and reliably catch the football? I think that was kind of the thought process there. But also something to look for in this uh, whole situation in terms of will they add another running back is just because, let's say they don't add one, right? Week one rolls around, Justice Hill's the guy. There's also the risk of them signing one after week one where contracts are not guaranteed, because maybe they like but don't love the guys that are available. They don't want to sign a guy and guarantee his deal because they want to basically let the cream rise to the top in a, in a running back competition for that number two role, for that passing down kind of role with Justice Hill and the free agent to be, potentially. And so, you know, they might look to sign that guy after week one because at that point you just cut him if he, you know, in three games later, if you're like, hey, we'd like Hill better, we'd like the, the undrafted kid from 2020 better. Let's just go ahead and roll with that. And that's something that's definitely possible. So when you look at Gus Edwards, because that's who this is about, I know I talked a lot about Justice Hill, but I think Gus is definitely the one where we have to kind of peg, what do we think, where do we value Gus Edwards? Let's. The best way I know how to do that is by determining what his floor is and then determining what his ceiling is, right? So I have this philosophy where I draft for the floor and I'm also cognizant, I'm aware of what that person's ceiling is, what that player's ceiling is. So with Gus, his floor to me, and remember, this is a guy that's been a 150 touch per season guy, basically 10 touches per game. And that's again with basically not even catching the football. So he's gonna he's gonna carry it 10 times a game. We can bank on that. And I think it's safe to assume we can throw, you know, an extra three carries a game on there. So we can call him a guy that's safely gonna touch the ball 13 times a game. And Again, primarily as a runner. So floor-wise, in my opinion, is mid to high-end flex play. I mean, I think that's it. maybe uh, – I would probably say he's going to earn the right to be a weekly flex play. Like you can just <clears> – <throat> you can pencil him as your starter every single week if you want to. If you don't have you know many other solid options to be a flex, Gus, I think, <clears throat> at his floor can do that for you. Um. In terms of his ceiling, right, I think that Gus will be a guy that, I mean, I'd say will be more in the 18 touch per game, you know, range. I mean, if they run, look, they run 35 times a game, Lamar will get 10 of them, Gus will get, I don't know, 16 to 18 of them in this scenario, in terms of like best case for Gus, and then Justice Hill or slash the free agent will combine for seven to nine runs a game, somewhere in that range, right? And that, again, that might not be just Justice Hill and the free agent. That might be the fullback, whatever, you know, whoever it might be. But <clears throat> in terms of like Gus's breakdown of that, if they run 35 times a game, which I, I think they'll be close to that, if not at that, I think they'll be at least at 31, 32 times a game. I think Gus gets 
16, call it 15 to 18 of those on average per game at the best case scenario. I mean, if he gets 18 touches per game behind what I believe is a, an improved offensive line over what they actually had on the field last year. I mean, I think I don't think that's a hot take. I think it's pretty safe to say. And I definitely think that the skill players, the receivers in particular, are much improved over what they had last year. So if Gus is toting the ball, touching the ball, and a combined 18 times a game between his one catch a game at best and his, uh, you know, and his runs, I think that um, he's probably an, an RB two, mid mid range RB two in terms of his ceiling. Maybe, maybe even a high end RB two. <clears throat> I do think that. You know, he could be that guy. Like he's he's the guy they wanted to keep around, and they basically chose Gus over Mark Ingram any and any potential free agent they could have had because they went ahead and just locked him up in terms of that second contract because he was an undrafted free agent, right? So he was on the I believe he was on the the tender or whatever. So like they could have played it out this year, but I think they went ahead and got the deal done mainly because they like Gus Edwards. They they look at him as just a vintage Raven running back, right? Could Gus Edwards surprise us and have the ability to catch the football, as I mentioned, and I was kind of laughing about this when I initially said it, but he did have nine catches last year, which was a career high, right, for him. It's not insane to think that number could double this year, you know, and that'd be one catch a game. It's not, I mean, could it go even higher than that? One and a half, if, if he could average one and a half catches per game and then run the ball 18 times a game, I mean, we could look and looking at it, like I said, a high end RB2. I'm not going to go any further than that in terms of his ceiling, but I think that he could be right there in that range. So the question you have to ask yourself in regards to Gus and, and fantasy football in terms of acquiring him pre-draft or during the draft is what round is it worth taking a flex player at his floor and a potential RB2 in terms of his ceiling? I mean, for me, someone asked me, I believe it was yesterday, the day before, they said, would you take him in round four? And I, I would not. I, I'm not taking Gus in round four because, like, if I have to choose between, I, I don't know, Gus and, let's say, Allen Robinson is sometimes available in round four. Chris Godwin I would take in – you know, it's there's there's a lot of guys I'd probably choose before Gus in round four. I feel like the perfect round for me to draft Gus Edwards would be round six because I think a player that he aligns with in terms of, like, what you know what they'll be or potentially what they could be in fantasy this year is Damian Harris. I think that role is almost going to be identical, right? Like guys that aren't going to catch a ton of passes, you know, they'll throw the Patriots will throw in James White or JJ Taylor in that role of the the kind of pass catching running back. And but Damian Harris is going to lead them in carries for sure. Gus Edwards is absolutely going to lead the Baltimore Ravens in carries. I mean, he is a he is a big bruising runner. And I remember the very first preseason game Gus Edwards ever played in. I, I watched him play and I was like, this dude might make the roster. Like he is just a workhorse to bring down. I mean, he is a monster. Like when he gets a full head of steam, he's a good player, man. He's a really good player. I didn't scout him coming out of college. I wish I would have, but you know, he's sort of like the James Robinson of, you know, the, of that draft class, right? The undrafted kid that turned out to be one hell of a player, made the Ravens op uh, roster from opening day or opening week, you know, in his, in, his, in his rookie season as an undrafted free agent in what was a pretty crowded backfield at the time. You know, that was pretty impressive. So, yeah, 
Gus Edwards, like I said, I would be super happy to get him in round six, maybe late round five, depending on how the draft is unfolding and what's available and what, you know, what my roster is looking like. If I end up doing something outrageous and going receiver, 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 which I would never do. But, you know, I mean, just if you're in a situation where you took two receivers in the first in the first four rounds or whatever, <clears throat> um, I don't know, maybe you or three in the first four rounds, I guess. Three in the first five rounds, you, you might be considering Gus in round five, but um, I feel most comfortable in round six. Okay, Daryl Henderson and Sonny Michelle. That's an interesting one, right? The Rams backfield situation because the Rams, you know, Sean McVay typically has run with a one back, you know, as my feature guy, right? He, he literally single-handedly ran Todd Gurley's knees into arthritis. I mean, unfortunately, as that might be, as it was, but Todd Gurley, if you guys remember, in terms of fantasy, there was, what was it, just a two-year stretch, I guess, where he was just unbelievable, catching like 60 passes, 50, 60, 70 passes a, a year, and toting the ball 300 times. It was nuts, right? The guy was touching the ball 400 times, if I, I think, one year. So that's insane. And if you guys remember, I always bring this up, right? Sean McVay is not a guy that he kind of has the reputation as like, Oh yeah, Sean McVay is all into analytics and he's into like the pass game, this, that, and the other. Sean McVay is a 50% run guy, 52% run guy. And he's been that way ever since going to the Rams. So the running, and he doesn't have a quarterback and really has never had a quarterback that's going to run. So those runs are all come. I mean, 90% of them are coming by the running backs. They're going to be a couple to Robert Woods, maybe Cooper Cup or whatever, but and this year, Tutu Atwell will be in, in that role for sure. They've been force-feeding Tutu Atwell, by the way, in uh, the preseason. It's pretty funny. to Hey, but that's the way you get a young kid ready. You know, just like we're going to target you 15 times a game in the preseason and, and just try and, you know, see how you respond to that. By the way, Tutu didn't necessarily respond all that well, but he did catch some passes, so that's good for him. Um, but anyways, <laughs> getting sidetracked. What – what do we do about the Daryl Henderson, Sonny Michelle situation? So I, I like with Sonny Michelle, and this is kind of intriguing. So I, I dug deeper into Sony and I found some interesting stuff out, right? What do we know about Sony Michelle? Well, they traded for Sony, which I think that tells us more about what they thought of the guys they had behind Daryl Henderson than anything else. And it also tells us about what they thought of the potential, you know, cut down running backs and what would be available in terms of free agency or waivers or whatever. So they didn't they didn't want to sit and wait and that's just the Rams style they're not going to sit wait and hope a guy makes it to them they're just going to give up the the draft capital particularly if it's late round stuff like Sony Michelle required so when you look at, and again I don't think that's an indictment on Daryl Henderson I think it's again a, an indictment on the seventh rounder in the UDFA they had behind Henderson and then we're going to go into the season like that which I think is a smart move Sony Michelle is a former first round pick right so the talent he definitely has talent and I thought just again, not really at surface level looking at it from that standpoint. I thought Sony Michelle had been underwhelming lately. And he had in 2019, right? He was like 2018 was a great rookie season for him. He was awesome. You know, he had us thinking maybe he's an RB1 or high in RB2, whatever, right? So I think he was a, probably a fourth round, fifth round pick at worst um, that second season. But he disappointed and he was really inefficient. He just didn't look like an explosive guy. He didn't look like a guy that could create yards on his own. He didn't look like a guy that should have been a first-round pick. He didn't look like a guy that definitely didn't look like a guy that should have been drafted ahead of Nick Chubb, which he was in the same draft class, believe it or not. So, But last year, he quietly had a 
phenomenally efficient 2020 season. I mean, yards before contact, just to, to kind of contextualize this, over Sony's career, so yards before contact, right, have been 2.4 in his rookie season, 2.1 and 2.1. His yards after contact in uh, those seasons have went, where is it? Uh, two, I'm sorry, 2.1 in as a rookie, right? So that's pretty good. Decent, half decent. 1.6 in 2019, so that was awful. And then last season, a whopping 3.6 yards after contact per attempt. If that qualified, that would have, that would have led the NFL. Like that, that would have been insane. He also averaged 5.7 yards per carry last year. So initially I was wondering like, man, Sony not playing well at all, right? It's kind of wild to see that he still commanded some type of trade value. I think it was because even though it was a smaller sample size last year in terms of just touches or whatever, he played well. I mean, he he really did. Like 5.7 yards a carry in the NFL is not easy to do. I mean, that played Devontae Booker because he averaged that for quite a large stretch of the 2020 season. That played him into a, a relatively large backup running back salary, two years, six million, or two years, five million, or whatever it was. And so it might even be more than that. But anyways, it played him into a decently large contract for a guy that was basically, you know, no one wanted. So Sony did that and he was able to sustain that for the entire year. And that 3.6 yards per carry after contact is, is impressive. And I don't care as long as it's not like a four carry sample size, it's, it's impressive. Sony, in my opinion, has a CJ Anderson like potential role in this offense. CJ Anderson, a guy that, you know, was, was released by the Panthers. And then after he went crazy in LA on that playoff run in the end of the regular season run there that year, he basically was, again, sort of unwanted after that. But CJ could probably catch the ball a little bit more reliably than what we've seen from Sony. But I think that if you would say, like, you know, sometimes we'll say he's got, you know, a, this guy on steroids role. Well, Sony has a CJ Anderson not on steroids. As a matter of fact, a less explosive CJ Anderson type of role in terms of potential there. But Sony's floor... To me, I think his floor is handcuff slash weekly matchup-based flex player. I think Daryl Henderson is the most intriguing one, right? Because Daryl, especially now with the presence of Sonny Michelle, his ADP might drop down even more. I don't even know really what these guys' ADPs are. I know it's the range, but I'm not – I think that this is really going to be a draft-by-draft draft basis. I think some leagues you're going to see Daryl Henderson going in the fourth or maybe even third round. I think other leagues – He'll be available in the seventh or eighth. It really depends in large part about whatever what platform you're drafting from and where they have him ranked because a lot of times that screws with people's heads. Even if they like a certain player enough to take him in the fourth round, if he's not – like, for example, Yahoo has Kenny Galladay going in, like, the seventh round. That, to me, that's crazy. I think that he's a great value in that – in um, really in any time in, like, the mid to late fifth, I would take Kenny Galladay with confidence. But for me, Daryl Henderson is um, okay. So Daryl was the guy, was the guy in LA last year before Cam Akers took over. I think you guys remember Akers had like a rib injury or something like that, where he missed a few games and he wasn't maybe just wasn't quite ready to be a instant impact performer as a rookie. So weeks two through seven, we saw Daryl Henderson be the guy. As I mentioned, he averaged fifteen and a half touches per game 
for over 85 yards a game, and he had four touchdowns in those six games. We know that the Rams will throw Daryl Henderson the football. They will because the dude caught a bunch, and I mean a bunch of passes in college at Memphis. He, he caught a lot of passes. He carried the hell out of the football. Like he sustained a very high-level workload and averaged an outrageous yards per carry. Like he's a, he's a talented dude. I mean, that's why they took him in the third round. You know, I mean, that's, that is, and that's when they had Todd Gurley, who was allegedly still in his prime, or had, at least they had hoped. So that's what they thought of Daryl Henderson. I mean, they just took Cam Akers in the second round, and they made him the workhorse before it was all said and done, right? So they want to use one back, but I think in, in this scenario, this season, with the two players that they have, I think Daryl Henderson's floor is a kind of matchup-based flex play, kind of a... The, the passing down back, right? Or the guy that's going to come in and be the, the change of pace guy to Sonny Michelle's CJ Anderson like role. I think that's his floor, right? I'm not saying that's what I think expect from Sony. Just saying, I think that's where Daryl Henderson's floor is in terms of ceiling. I think we need to revert right back to what I just mentioned weeks two through seven last year. Uh, Daryl Henderson was the RB 13 and half PPR scoring in terms of just points scored by a running back in those weeks, two through seven. And in terms of amongst qualifying running backs, which is I did at least three games, he was the RB 19 and half PPR points per game. So I think that ironically, his ceiling to me aligns quite nicely with a guy like Gus Edwards, right? So if, if the floor is similar to Gus Edwards, the ceiling is similar to Gus Edwards, where I'm going to value him in terms of drafting him is going to be similar, to, more similar to Gus Edwards. But I will say, probably earlier because for me as someone that believes in Daryl Henderson's talent more so than probably a lot of people, I feel like the likelihood, and this is nuanced, right? This is my, and it's subjective. I feel like the likelihood of Daryl Henderson hitting his ceiling is higher than Gus Edwards hitting his ceiling because we've seen Gus's role has been remarkably consistent. Daryl Henderson's role has seen spikes of which Gus Edwards has not, right? So I think that drafting him, again, with the similar floor around earlier makes sense to me. I feel like if you take him in the fourth round, that's just a bit too risky because, again, if we draft for floor, I'll be cognizant of the ceiling. We draft him in the fourth round. We're drafting a, a matchup-based flex guy in the fourth round, right? That's To me, that's not very appealing, in especially when you consider the other guys available there. When you talk about the fifth round now, while being, you know, recognizing that he has a decent chance of hitting his mid to high end RB2 ceiling, I would say mid range RB2, um, I think that that makes sense. So for me, and again, I'm, I, I am someone that certainly believes in Daryl Henderson's talent more so than most. Like I, I felt like, I honestly felt like, and I think I advise you guys to, to pick him up in all leagues last year after watching what was going on in weeks two, three, four. I was like, dude, get him on your roster because we we know that Cam Akers is a good player and all that. But Daryl Henderson looks like the better player right now. And a lot of times, you guys know I like to joke about draft picks, like draft picks are overrated. I'm like, dude, if, if he's playing better than Cam Akers, he's going to keep that role because as long as he keeps playing well – you know, that Sean McVay has shown us in the past that he'll, he'll force feed one guy. And so 
it eventually just showed us, though, that whatever they were seeing from Cam Akers in practice or I'm not sure if Henderson, I think he might have missed a game or two, and that kind of opened the door for Akers. But in any case, they liked Akers more. But I think just based on what we saw weeks two through seven last year, they also liked Daryl Henderson. I think the fact that they traded for Sony Michelle is once again more of an indictment on what they thought of the guys behind Daryl Henderson than what it is for Daryl Henderson. And they know, and we've seen in this league, Sonny Michelle be the lead back in an offense before, and it was a Super Bowl winning offense that happened to beat the Rams and Sean McVay. So it made sense that you usually, in personnel, you usually kind of pursue guys that have succeeded against you. And I believe Sonny Michelle had a pretty good game in that Super Bowl, but he had an awesome playoff run. He was like unbelievable. 20 plus touches a game, 140 yards. It was like he was dominant in that playoff run. So anyways, I feel I feel like I kind of gave you guys a pretty decent breakdown of those two players and just really how I feel about them as well as the guys behind them. And yeah, I will see you tomorrow. That's the end of this podcast. Later.